hey everyone super cool guests tonight we have whitney anthony and brandon they are co-contributors to a new book that was recently yeah recently released called liberating church a 21st century hush harbor manifesto uh would you all be kind of introduce our audience to what you all did with the book and really what was the drive behind doing this project yeah thanks for having us chase um yeah, I would say I, I, I'm happy to kick us off and say, um, you know, why we why we you know started the book. We were at um, myself, Anthony. We were at the Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee. Um, you know, just a seedbed uh, of revolutionary struggle um, throughout the years, especially in the South, and um, you know, at the intersections of faith and culture, and you know, we were there for a post-election summit um, to really strategize about how we were going to fight back against Trumpism. Um, and we had folks from all across the country, um, different geographies, multiracial, uh, it's pretty powerful. And um, part of what happened in that conversation between, I mean, part of what happened at the retreat um, is that Anthony and I entered into a conversation about what it looked like on a local level to to think about um, church, the ecclesia, and fresh ways that uh, connected to the kind of activism and organizing that that retreat was calling forth. Because the idea for the retreat was to think through strategy in terms of organizing and activism. And the, the conversation wasn't so much centered on um, sort of what we traditionally think of as the functions of church. And in the midst of that, uh, you know, Anthony, you know, uh, I think the term you use, bro, is like Af uh, Afro-missiology uh, or something like I can't remember exactly what it was. But um, but we were just kind of saying, like, where do we look for a model of church, of doing church that is organizing and activism? And that is both shaping change in the society and critiquing faith in the church. And we were we we, you know, ended up landing on the hush harbors, which were. Um, the the secret uh, gathering places of enslaved Africans in the antebellum period where they um, mixed together their African traditional religions and a liberatory Christianity and um, and also organized for um, change. Um, um, they resisted the plantation economy and the, pl the plantation church. Yeah, that's excellent. So it's interesting because I think a lot of Christians might resonate with that desire to connect their church life, connect their kind of Christian community to like political struggle, political, uh, whether, whether it's activism, organizing, mobilizing. And, and I also think it's very interesting that there's just this clear gap that a lot of us, I think, can resonate with this disconnect from going to church on Sunday mornings, talking about Jesus, maybe even like listening to a sermon that's that has some political stuff in it. But uh, a lot of church has become completely devoid from participating in local struggle, right? We're not talking about like this big picture national stuff, but really just like immersing ourselves in our communities and participating in political change. And uh, I'm wondering, why do you think that is such a massive gap for so many Christians right now? Uh, <laughs> I mean, much of North American Christianity is a part of the colonial structure, from its theology to its ecclesiology, 
to his organizational structure, to his understanding of leadership, to understanding of preaching, um, is very much wedded to the the settler colonialism uh, of our culture. And so, I, you know, it's it reminds me of the same. Some people have probably seen it when in the most recent movie what they did with Nat Turner. Um, I forget the name of the movie. But there's a scene where there's a shift when they called him the slaves or this so-called so-called slaves. The slave Africans were misbehaving. They weren't going along. And so they were hire out uh, slave preachers, enslaved African preachers, to come and get the enslaved Africans in line. They would read certain texts. And so there's a scene in there when that is called, because he was one of those preachers to come in and put the Africans in order. But there's a shift when he sees the suffering of his people. So he begins to say, quote from the slave, so-called slave Bible with certain authorized passages. And he begins to shift and begins to call forth a very powerful apocalyptic kind of reading and prayer uh, that basically calls into question the whole structure. And so I would just simply say that much of our Christianity does not call into question everything around us. It pretty much accepts it, justifies it, apologizes for an apologetic kind of sense. Yeah, so I hear you saying like when the ex- when the exploitation and oppression is unnamed, it it often refuses to name it, uh, and then when it is named, it usually kind of goes against it, right? It, it justifies the exploitation and the oppression, and particularly those forms of exploitation and oppression here are settler colonialism. Um, in in that situation, it was slavery, um, and presently we also have capitalism. And in and settler colonialism, you know, to be clear, that's white supremacy as well. You know, um, white supremacy is another word for it, but I think settler colonialism um, is a bit more concrete because white Americans slaughtered indigenous people, committed genocide, and then colonized uh, African people to be the uh, the surplus labor producers here on the land of genocide. And that persists, right? So settler colonialism didn't end at any point in our history. It persists today. I myself, I'm a white settler, and and so I think um, I think you're absolutely right that Christianity. You know, I I grew up. I didn't know what colonialism was. I never heard about settler colonialism until maybe just a few years ago, even in seminary. And this is really really important because we have a lot of well studied people who have read a lot of theology and perhaps even identify as very liberal, very progressive, very you know anti-Trump. Let's stop fascism, and yet we're not really talking about the exploitation of the masses of, uh, of of workers here. We're not talking about the colonization of the lands and the bodies. And for me, I think that's really, really fundamental. So um, you, you all are already starting to talk about eventually these things called hush harbors emerge. Uh, let's dive in. So what are hush harbors and what role do you, did you all see in your study and your investigation of them? What role did hush harbors play in the uh, African struggle against American colonization and enslavement. Whitney. <laughs> okay. Um, Hush Harbors were a spirit-fueled revolutionary answer to plantation Christianity. They were sites uh, where 
and this gets into some of the capitalism stuff where land was not owned, it was appropriated, right? Places that were considered abandoned or wild or um, kind of no man's land, swamps, woods. These were the places that became sanctuaries that were borrowed. Um, they Hush harbors were places of worship that mixed African ancestral worship and traditions with some of Christianity, particularly the text that had been excised from that slave Bible that took out the entire story of Moses, for example. And, uh, and they were places of, of like music and ring shouts and just this wild, um, wild in the sense of um, otherworlding kind of wild um, connection with people who call themselves humans, right? In a system that said they were not, in a Christianity that said they were not, that said they didn't have souls, for example. Um, yeah, it was just a place um, in kind of stolen away moments, in stolen away land where a new world was proclaimed and lived and preached and embodied. I think it's really interesting that you uh, that you named how these spaces that they met were off the master's radar, right? They were they were devalued spaces, devalued places, um, places where the uh, the enemy weren't gonna come around, right? Because they had to have some kind of level of secrecy and and safety, and and so getting off into these spaces where white folk weren't. Those were safer places too, and then, as you're saying, these were these were sites of worship as well. Um, I'm curious, how did these sites of worship orient, and what direction did these places of worship orient the enslaved peoples, politically, socially, yeah. spiritually? It's such a great question, and I, I, I mean, we can we can all chime in here. I feel like I, I'll just start with one. <clears throat> you know, it was a you know what we see in the narratives of enslaved folks is that. The worship, one of the elements of worship included um, talking back to the biblical text, right? You know, there's one there's one quote, and I'm, I am paraphrasing that says, you know, there was no preacher because we were all eager to have a word to say. Right. Um, and even that is a kind is a kind of disruption of capitalist understandings of leadership and power and voice, right? Um, already from the beginning, um, all the people who were willing to take the kind of risk to steal away, to to to, to escape, even even if temporarily, um, were seeking to um, embody a kind of democratic uh, practice with one another um, in the way that they worshipped. Um, and so, so you see how that is doing something for people who otherwise um, their voices are being um, erased, not considered, diminished. Um, worship orients one not only to the kind of adoration to a creator, to a deity, to the sacred, but that is also at the same time an orientation towards um, how we move and live in the world with one another. And even those folks who um, are about our demise. So it's at the same time, both um, worship and politics. Um, and so that's important to name. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting that you name how 
slavery was uh, slavery and capitalism, right? It teaches the enslaved people and workers to act a certain way. It's not it's not uncommon for me to want to say something to my boss, but I can't, right? There, uh, there are some things where I would love to be an equal. I would love to participate and to actually share in the decision-making power, but also be able to like communicate to someone as if we're actual mutual he- human beings. But at work, we're not, right? Workers and and their the boss's puppets, uh, the managers, you know, we're not equal human beings. And and if we do speak out, if we do have a real sense of dignity, well, we run the risk of getting fired. And the same relation in the exploitative relationship between the master and the slave, slaves are being taught the same thing, right? You don't get to have a word, you know? You're our, our snatched uh, person that we own. Um, or so, like what, what Anthony raised in the movie, I think it was Birth of a Nation, right? The, the sort of the most yeah. contemporary version of it. Or if you do get a word, it's muffled it's mangled it's the words we want you to say it's puppeting it's a version of christianity that says we want to save you and for you to experience freedom but not now after you die and um which makes you more content with what you face here um but that's not what happened in hush harbors that's not what they taught that's not what they believed yeah. And I would say um, in those spaces with the way the Africanisms, uh, the way that we would engage spirit um, in the sacred world, you know, a very enchanted understanding of reality, uh, the way black folks would worship with our bodies and our mouths and our noise and our sounds and um, even to this day, um, it creates an altered state of consciousness. Um, it is a mysticism there that shifts the consciousness. And I believe that uh, when you're in spaces like that, whatever the consciousness, little c, that you experience in plantation reality, it gets disrupted and shifted um, to big c consciousness, where not only are you connecting with the sacred, but you're connecting with each other on a deeper level, but you're also connecting with uh, the possibility of freedom. Um, you're connecting with the possibility of, I am more than what this other reality is saying that I am. Um, I'm, I'm retaining my humanity. And so I would just simply say that part of the worship was they retained, they were able to stay human. They were able to maintain their dignity, maintain their imago day. Uh, by not letting that larger principality and power bear down on them. I love that. You know, and when when I think of enchantment and mysticism, you know, uh, while I think it's very fair to say that uh, a lot of these enslaved people and a lot of like Christians today are talking about something that perhaps is some otherworldly thing. But but what I hear you saying, and I think is very historically accurate, is that the enchantment and the mysticism and the spirituality that they were really diving deeper into 
led them to a deeper sense of like material relationship, uh, you know, a deeper sense of real consciousness of the, of what, what really could be felt and known, which were their, uh, their fellow worshipers, which was the soil, which were the, the trees and the water and the animals around them. And so I think that's um, very interesting to think about how mysticism and spirituality in my mind should lead us deeper to a, a real felt relationship um, with our, our real world. And and then I also hear you talking about this developed consciousness, this political consciousness of, you know, the relationships in which I am, the life that I'm living today is not the life that their God or gods were calling them to live, right? They, they knew that what was happening to them and the earth was unjust. And so at some point, slaves or enslaved people in kind of micro communities, but eventually on a very, very large scale, they got together and they had to do something about it. They were going to end that. Yeah. So I, I think that's really interesting how this place of worship led to a deeper sense of relationship, of connectedness to each other, to the ground that they were forced to toil over uh, in, in a brutal way, in a very uh, profit driven way. Uh, but also, uh, these were sites where their consciousness uh, was developed as well. That's what I'm just going to add real quick that we, I was thinking about not only Nat Turner, but, you know, freedom fighters like Harriet Tubman, who had profound connections with Hush Harbors, who were known to be mystics, who were entered into altered state of consciousness. And so I think that's, that's a part of the orientation around the kind of worship liturgy, if you will, uh, in those spaces. Yeah, and Harriet Tubman, I mean, she's another story because she, and understandably so, she's been captured. Her life, her struggle, her witness, she, her life has been captured by, I would say, liberal ideology. It's been reduced to this person who did something kind of morally just and, and something that happened far along the way. But she was a revolutionary. She wanted to destroy her enemies, crush American slavery. And so I, I, I think uh, I'm glad you uh, brought her up because with John Brown, you know, they, they played a, a major role together in initiating, trying to initiate a slave revolt, a slave revolution that white America was constantly afraid of. And I would say uh, persists. We are afraid of class revolution, obviously, here in, in this country. Um, so before we move on to some other aspects of Hush Harbors, why were Hush Harbors needing to be so secret? Because, like, Hush Harbors weren't just about going off and, and holding hands and talking about Jesus. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering, but perhaps that was actually part of it as well, right? You're, you're, uh, it was a religious site, a, a place of, of worship. Before we move on, I, I just, I want to think about why, why did, why were Hush Harbors so dangerous? Because any two enslaved people gathering together without an overseer to watch them, to surveil them was illegal. And the penalty for that would be lynching, right? Death. Yeah. So, I mean, they were quite literal. Talk about the materiality of it. They were literally risking their bodies just by, even if they, you know, wherever they were, this is part of why it matters that they were such desolate, um, forgotten places that they gathered because just being in the same place without someone to surveil surveil them properly meant they could be killed. Of course, anything meant they could be killed, right? This is a ideology of conquest and genocide, something even stronger than the idea of settlement. Um, yeah. So 
they were risking their lives. There was no way they could gather. Yeah, I think there was, you know, it's safe to say there was constant fear of slave revolutions, of class revolutions, uh, of the enslaved masses taking the tools that they were using in the fields and turning and crushing uh, their, their enslavers, ending their exploitation. Uh, 1804, we had the Haitian Revolution, which shook the world. And as we, you know, as we mentioned just a few minutes ago, John Brown and Harriet Tubman worked together to organize uh, folks together to to have a a uh, a revolt. And even though that one failed, we all know that the Civil War uh, happens just a few years later, and of course the you know white capitalists in the North. History tells us that they they gave two shits about the masses of enslaved people. What well, uh, what that war really was initially about was a a struggle between the northern capitalists and the southern slave owning capitalists. But the only reason why that war went one way and not the other were the masses of enslaved people from the South uh, fled their plantations, grabbed a gun, went back to the South, and they killed their masters. And, and they killed all the white people who were kind of, who, who bought into the slave system as well to win their freedom. Um, and, and I ask that question because I think we can talk about Hush Harbors today, right? Hush Harbors, uh, this is part of the project. You all look at eight characteristics of Hush Harbors, and then you look at six different communities that have these characteristics uh, today. And I think that is really interesting. And and I and I just want us to, when when I saw this, this book about hush harbors and, and churches kind of mirroring some of these characteristics, I just think that's an incredible vision that grounds, going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, it pushes the church out of this this complacency of, of pretending to be apolitical. Or thinking just voting every four years is politics. No, what we do every single week, week in and week out, that's political. And it might be nothing, or it might be tweeting. And those are really, really bad politics. Those are politics that actually reproduce the exploitation and the oppression of the masses here in the United States, but especially across the world. So I just, I, I'm really excited. I'm really enjoying this conversation on Hush Harbors. And I just wanted to push that, that these were very secret um, underground initiatives which might be called for today as well. So let's move on. Ubuntu. What is Ubuntu? It's a characteristic, one of the characteristics that you all come up with from your study of Hush Harbors. So what is Ubuntu and how do you see capitalism, perhaps you know, structurally, materially, and through its real relationships, but also ideologically in the cultural sphere, how do you see capitalism undermining Ubuntu amongst black communities particularly today? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a that's a that's a great question. I mean, <laughs> let me just start with Ubuntu. Ubuntu is um, an African principle that means I am because we are. Like you know, it's it's a way of trying to describe our interconnectedness, um, not just with humans, but with the the um, all living creatures, all living creation, the planet, etc. Um. Ooh, this piece on capital. How does capitalism undermine? We gonna all we gonna all need to chime in on this one. Let me just start this way in terms of contemporary black community. So I, you know, <laughs> gosh, where do I begin? I'll, I'll start with with just thinking about black communities, residential communities. So I'm a community organizer, right? And part of what I have experienced just in the last, you know, four or five years, in you know, um 
a working class black community on the east side of Greensboro, North Carolina, is that um, very few of the neighbors here, and, and when I when I talk about like community organizing, I'm talking like having thousands of conversations, like knowing the majority of the people in a place in order to build majority working class power, right? That's, like we, that's we're not talking organizing. about exactly. We're not talking about yeah. So exactly. So very few folks actually know their neighbors. And there's one narrative where we could say, and I think this is often the case in progressive white um, sort of church planting missiology uh, kind of circles where it's like, you know, the reason why people don't know their neighbors is because, um, you know, it's their personal responsibility. It's sort of, it's sort of reducing it to the individual. And so we're going to come in and help them learn how to get to know their neighbors. If we look at it from a capitalism standpoint, this is by design, right? like that the kind of the ways in which um, black home ownership, the ways in which displacement, um, the ways in which all kinds of forces and policies that undermine uh, everything from quality jobs, decent wages, you know, uh, quality schools, decent housing. We can go on and on and on. All these forces contribute to the kinds of fragmentation that exist in black communities. And I'll stop that because I could go on and on and on. Well, I mean, like I was talking to somebody the other day, because uh, one of the things that we wrestle with here in our community, in our own organizing, are young people who get caught up in what some people call gangs um, and the territorialism. Um, the survival of the fittest. Uh, and so the, uh, the person I was debating with, you know, I was just saying, you know, there's very little difference between what happens on some blocks and what happens between the State Department and another foreign country. So Pentagon flies different colors. Russia flies different colors. I said, so I think with capitalism, I think it creates, uh, you know, because one of the drivers of capitalism is competitive advantage. You know, one entity trying to gain advantage over another. And so this stuff is woven into our culture, from popular culture to uh, art, cultural artifacts to narratives we tell. Um, so the sense of interdependence that we see Ubuntu uh, uh, any community that intentionally tries to cultivate that goes against that narrative. And me and Brandon have had, had many conversations about how frustrated we get sometimes because it seems like you're dealing with a monster that is so pervasive. Um, and, you know, how do you do that? And for me, what I've learned is you just got to create those spaces, um, however small, however small the network, and you just build those kind of prefigurative uh, people that are in that are already but not yet kind of we're already trying to dive lean, lean into this kind of community this, into this kind of understanding of human connection and community uh, but also being able to name those forces and histories that will try to shape us to be against that to be anti-human 
I have some thoughts. So I am, I'm a white woman, so I don't speak for the black community. I don't speak for the black church. Um, I can speak for the white church, which is to say predominant ideologies of United States Christianity, not predominant in the sense of most important, but predominant in the sense of um, idolatry and capital. Um, and so in terms of that, right, I can say that capitalism created what Sadia Hartman called the propertied person. Um, and I've written a bit about this, this idea of like accounting for enslaved Africans as not human, but as items of chattel in a ledger book. They were propertied people, right? White people, your, people of European descent are the beneficiaries of that, were and are. Um, and, and the biggest threat to Ubuntu in a sense of true interdependence is a failure on the part of white people to tell that truth and to face that reality. Um, and so what happens instead is reconciliation that's not anything, right? That's just sort of lip service and like a voyeurism into blackness, which is just another profitable repeat of capitalist structures of property people and beneficiaries. Um, and so Ubuntu is so much deeper than that, but it, it never happens unless white people are willing to begin to tell the truth about ourselves. Um, white Christians, maybe in particular, um, to recognize the ways that slavery is not past, the past is not past, right? Um, and so I can't just sort of go about some kind of vague reconciliation that makes me feel better by putting my body around a bunch of black bodies or Latino bodies and saying that is community. If I'm not willing to do the work of recognizing my privilege and the structures that have continued to make me a benefit, even maybe to a lesser degree, right, than others, of course, but a beneficiary of capitalism that regards humans, racialized humans as capital. Right. So, yeah, I have a lot to say on that. But, um, yeah, I think Ubuntu is, is a wonderful idea. I don't think we get there very often, which is why it's so exciting to have concrete communities in this book that begin to show that this is actually possible. Absolutely. And I want to come back to what uh, Anthony and Brandon said, but as a white settler as well, when European, northern, southern, eastern Europeans migrated to the United States, they had to become white. And part of that was leaving back, especially early on in capitalism, before capitalism just ravaged the entire world and reached its height, which is uh, presently imperialism. In the earlier days, uh, European immigrants would migrate here and we had to abandon everything that we knew in the past. And that were deeper, deeper kind of communal practices. We bought into the capitalist system. We did so, and part of buying into the capitalist system was buying into anti-blackness, buying into colonialism. And it's not that we were like welcomed into the ruling class, right? Uh, the masses of white people today are still not in the ruling capitalist class. You know, I personally, I, I would say like I have almost zero power in determining what this city that I live in is is like or what's going on in the United States. 
Uh, again, I think we're constantly told that we have the power to shape America or shape what we're doing in the world. I don't even know what, what, what half the stuff is going on in the world. Um, and, and that's and that's partially because I'm a full-time worker. So all that to say is that, um, Whitney, I think you're absolutely right, that white people bought into whiteness. We bought into capitalism. We bought into colonialism. And obviously we did that at the expense of black people. We did that at the expense of of, of Asian and Latin and indigenous peoples so that we could get a step up, uh, get a leg up and uh, try and take some of the rewards from the super exploitation of black bodies and indigenous lands. So I think you're absolutely right there. But as uh, Anthony and Brandon were also mentioning earlier on, um, and, and I really appreciate this this understanding that Ubuntu is I am because we are. It's so fundamentally just, it's hard to really conceptualize today. You know, we, we, we predominantly think of ourselves as individuals. Um, everything we do, uh, every, everywhere we go from kind of birth to death now is about me as an individual and, and what I've done individually rather than having any sense of community. And, you know, me and my partner right now, we're really questioning about uh, where we want to spend the next couple of years, if not decades of our life, because we've tried a place and guess what? We feel this deep sense of alienation. You know, we are investing in communities, we're investing in relationships. And yet, as uh, Brandon was alluding to earlier on, these capitalist relations strip us from uh, from what we do. So we're spending all of this time at work and then we go home to very isolated, alienated communities because everyone else is really busy or exhausted at work and, and and we don't have time. We don't have space for deep, meaningful relations. Everything is about uh, serving the production and the expansion of capital or just mere survival for um, for many, many folks today. So yeah, I, I think Ubuntu just, it just doesn't, it's not going to work under capitalism. You know, you we can try and create spaces. And Anthony, I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. And this has been a traditional, like, radical approach is to create alternative micro, small communities. But I'm wondering, I think a communist analysis would say, yes, let's do that. And that helps us kind of like a hush harbor. These are sites where our ideology, our politics, our consciousness can be transformed. But at some point, we have to transform the system because hush harbors are not they're not welcome, you know, in uh, in conditions of slavery. And the same thing for like real, genuine, deep, wide spaces uh, and communities where Ubuntu is is just like overwhelming. And it's just kind of I, I can just imagine how shocking an alternative uh, it would be to experience a deep, meaningful community uh, of Ubuntu. But I also realize that I'm not for sure it's really that possible, or if it is, it's going to be partial under these conditions of colonialism and capitalism. What do you think? Well, I think that without being a part of a community where you're shaped and formed into a collective consciousness, you're not going to engage in collective struggle. If you're not connected to a group of people that have those kind of commitments that, that live into and embody those kind of practices, where does the consciousness come from? So, again, it's interesting. That's an interesting question because we're just, we were just talking about how this individualism uh, surfaces in our culture and how it shapes us to see ourselves as individuals, which we know is a modern idea, right? So how, does class, how can you have class struggle without a collective sense of consciousness? Big C, not little c, right? And by big C, I mean you're engaging in some kind of a self-understanding that you're engaging in some kind of liberative uh, 
freedom kind of work. Um, that requires community. I mean, it, it's not, this is not a theory. This is like what we see in real life. This is what we see in history. All the great freedom fighters that we've seen work within some kind of community where they shape each other, where they encourage each other, where they challenge each other, held each other accountable uh, to this possible, this possible reality, this new social reality that could be emerging. Yeah, and to clarify, there perhaps are two different ways of thinking about these potential Ubuntu communities that we definitely, I think all four of us would agree that we want to we want to build, we want to participate in, um, mm-hmm. but perhaps two different ways of thinking about them, and um, yeah, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. Ours one uh, is that these Ubuntu communities, these are the these are the alternative. These are the, the this is how we end capitalism, right? We just choose to opt in and build these Ubuntu communities, whether that's at home, in the neighborhood, in our churches, maybe friendships. I mean, again, I'm like, well, you really can't have Ubuntu. You you could have solidarity with your coworkers, but at some point. Um, you're still competing even with your own coworkers. So, so yeah, I, I guess that's the question is, do you think that Ubuntu communities are the means of the, of transforming the world? If we just kind of all opt into it, if we kind of promote it enough, or do you think that they are vehicles for developing that consciousness and, and kind of creating that, that health and that stability that we need for transforming the system, uh, transforming the world that, is pretty anti-Ubuntu. What do you think? I'm just real both. quickly. So I know, I'm going to say both. That was real quick, because I wrote the chapter on North Star. <laughs> so it was like, it's both. How do we be in the world as humans together, apart from what these structures and these social systems tell us we ought to be as humans together, while also at the same time, we're shaping our consciousness, our ways of being in the world, to bring some level of transformation and shift in our local communities, hopefully it'll go up. Uh, but it's both. How do we, because like on one hand, it's like the goal is higher than even the dismantle of capitalism. The goal is how do we be a community of humans together? How do we be people that, uh, which is anti-capitalist or I don't know, I don't use the word anti-capitalist, but it's, I don't know, pro-community. I don't know what to describe it. Uh, Harsh harbors, I don't know. But anyway, (laughs) it's ecclesia. I don't know. Kingdom of God, whatever you want to call it. But it's it's to be the thing now. Right? To be that community now, that living, breathing Ubuntu community now. We're also at the same time engaging in the work, transformative work, uh, like the work, kind of work me and Brandon do on the ground in our communities is deeply transformative on the grassroots level, building relationships and building out um, and getting people to show up in many different kinds of ways. I really appreciate you saying the piece around um, around we have to be it now. Um, because because he, and I just want to say one one little piece here, because take, for example, you know, I have, I have several union organizer friends. Right. And one of the one of the one of the critiques of um, sort of you know, you know, their purview is like contemporary um, class struggles uh, through the workplace in particular is reducing a human being to a worker. What we know it takes to both sustain victories and to wage struggles 
is something more than reducing ourselves to any one identity. I mean, that we can get into conversations about identity politics, right? It's not sufficient. And this is where Ubuntu is a much more profound and deep and reverent, um, dignifying understanding of how we relate to one another and connect to one another. And, and you know, often what, what I've seen just on a local level is that the places where we might see in the news some in the news or sort of in in sort of um, or, or sort of hearsay about um, when we experience losses or when we experience the kind of um, sort of white lash or backlash from from our resistance. What's often lurking behind that <laughs> that we discover too inside of our movements is that we haven't often lived up to um, the the very things that we claim we want to seek and realize in, in our communities and societies. Those two don't have to go hand in hand. It's just the name that you can't have one without the other. And I just really appreciate what, what Anthony's saying. So in other words, when I'm organizing in the community or in neighborhoods, someone is not just the, like reduced to um, living in the neighborhood, right? Um, there's got to be a, a, a more... Um, I like the word transfigurative, transfigurative way in which we understand our relationship to each other that goes beyond um, the moment. I mean, that's how you sustain the kind of hope that um, interrupts the kind of despair and hopelessness that that capitalism breeds in our consciousness. Yeah, and I would also say this is all very much aligned with Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, uh, because Maoism, Marxism sometimes gets, I think, wrongly prescribed as something that's very mechanistic and, and just like very reductionistic materially. And so you, as you said earlier, what's a person? Oh, they're just a worker, right? And and we just have to take that worker, put him in the right space. And it's just kind of some kind of like uh, mechanical machine that we got to retweak or something. I, I don't know. That's not the Marxism, Leninism, Maoism I've studied. Um, and especially Maoism that helped us develop what we call a, a, the – great cultural uh, proletarian revolution. Mao put a huge emphasis on on transforming the, the need for people themselves uh, spiritually and, and kind of at a really deeper sense. It's not just about, well, let's just like put people in a different kind of relationship, right? Literally, literally just like this, like uh, this mechanical machine that we just need to tweak the gears. No, it's about a deeper, uh, a much deeper transformation. And uh, I think it's very historically accurate to say that there is no revolution that has ever happened that happened overnight. What what happens is that people are transformed over time. And I think, you know, whether you're for revolution or not listening in, uh, I think everyone listening in, in is for really, really deep ch- transformation. And that comes, you know, people are transformed over time. It's, uh, but it, but I think it's most effectively done through that really militant on the ground, personal organizing that both Anthony and Brandon have have mentioned here as well, right? Not just the mobilizing, which that has a place for it, and definitely not kind of Twitter, Instagram, performing our, our politics, uh, which I think a lot of my generation is getting lost to right now. But that real on-the-ground, person-to-person conversation, that's the, the means for developing the deeper sense of relationship that capitalism and colonialism has tried to strip us from, uh, for developing the necessary consciousness the, the necessary means of understanding, wait, what's happening to my body? What, 
who do I really have solidarity with? Who are my who are my real enemies and my real people who should be uh, my allies in the struggle? So yeah, I think communities of Ubuntu are really really important, and that these communities of Ubuntu should point us toward ending the systems of exploitation and oppression. I want to keep on moving. There's a chapter called Steal Away, and I just want to read a, a quote real quick. Uh, and Brandon, I think you wrote this chapter, right? Yeah. All right. So, quote, there are no longer laws that forbid black people from congregating together or from worshiping in the manner we choose. Black people are no longer forced to hide our ways of being from the wider society. America and the institutional church would have black people believe that we can be black in plain sight. And yet visibility is fool's gold. To be seen is not freedom. Not when under the gaze of empire and its chaplains. My ancestors were not forced to steal away. They chose to break rank with the visibility of the plantation culture. They chose risk that brings change. And real change is never about spectacle, end quote. You go on to say that stealing away is about uh, agitation, perhaps even organizing. And I wanted to emphasize that stealing away is like uh, the Hush Harbor itself is very, very political. We've been talking about, we're really pulling out that uh, tonight. So many enslaved people were captured, tortured, sometimes even killed when stealing away. And I would say if we get caught, all right, it most certainly would lead us to getting locked up, tortured, or killed. So stealing away isn't someone tweeting or Instagramming or performing their politics online. Stealing away was underground, illegal. This is Harriet Tubman. And this is the kind of organizing John Brown was also participating in. So today I think, you know, stealing away should be done for the purposes of organizing, right? Of developing their struggle of for the end of the master, the end of the colonizer, and presently the end of the capitalist. So what does stealing away mean to you all? And why do you think it was fundamentally threatening to the exploiting class and colonizing nation. Well, first of all, thank you for reading that, um, that, that, uh, you know, beautifully written. <laughs> it was, it was beautifully <laughs> Peace. I don't know who wrote Indeed. that, but you know, you know, uh, no, you know, still a what? Yes, I do think it is organizing and y- y- you'd be hard pressed to find any person who has done any kind of organizing that results in building power that would tell you that the small units that developed that people power didn't begin with a front porch conversation and not just chit chat and not just gossiping, right? A very intentional conversation about building power. We call these public relationships is the language that's, you know, come to be proliferated now, you know, by, Uh, so yeah, I won't get on the history of why we call them that. And so th- those things, there is no, t- like, why would I pull out Twitter when I'm ha- like, I literally just left I, like before I came straight from being on the doors today with the team of organizers that we have talking with people for the last four hours. And, um, why would I pull out Twitter or Facebook? Um, as so like, as the, the, like, as the essence of what it means to do that work. Sure, I think that, and even though I'm being critical of visibility and spectacle um, in service to the gaze of capitalism, white supremacy, et cetera, 
I do think that I am not trying to make a critique of the importance of image, the importance of narrative, the importance of culture, right? So I'm not saying after you have the organizing conversation that you don't snap a selfie, you know, if with someone's consent as a way to tell the story, right? Um, but you got to have the conversation first. It's got to have been something worth taking the selfie for. And so, yes, I do think Still Away is about those conversations that we have one by one in small groups, in communities, in workplaces, um, or wherever you are organizing um, in order to build the kind of power that we need um, to pursue whether you see that as revolution, transformative change, whatever that goal is, that is about the work of justice. And I think that, but you know, part of what I love about um, coming to this as a person of faith and as a person in the Jesus tradition is that there's enough space for us to disagree about those, the, the telos, the, the direction, whether it's revolution or, right, what we know, and this is where there's a, a broader moral commitment, right, um, is a commitment to justice, right? Um, and so I just, yes, I think stealing away is that, and last thing I'll say is that I feel like, you know, um, when you think about churches, and I would say when you think about activism in the contemporary moment, this is the part of that that both goes unspoken and unnoticed. And I'm not necessarily saying it's got to be popular, you know, popular, but I also just don't think it's happening enough. Um, and so, you know, whether that looks like after a worship service on Sunday, being sure to make sure that you go, you schedule that time that, you know, to sit down with someone to grapple with what the sermon was about. That's that's really trying to expand our political imagination about what things are. And then sitting down with someone um, in the congregation or someone in your neighborhood to say, now, what are we going to do about that? And why haven't we yet? What do you think it's going to take to get us there? Right. That's what it means to steal away. Yeah, I think this is unfortunately just super rare. And um and and I also think it's interesting, you know, I think you, all three of you all are pastors, correct? Yeah, so so you all you all know your shit, all right? You all know your theology. Um you all are deeply committed to your own particular communities. Um but you're also, you know, you you all have this book together now. And I think a lot of folks who are in the pastor world or they're in the theology world and they've also got a book or an essay or a dissertation out, a lot of the politics are being kind of sucked off into the social media world. And and I guess if, if we could spend just a few more minutes here, because I think this is really fundamental. Um, both uh, Anthony and Brandon, you all have talked about just the necessity of organizing. And I'm wondering... Could you could you talk to me as someone who perhaps I say I never organized? You all have knocked on thousands of doors. And now what if I instead like got on you know, Instagram, TikTok and, and made made some videos and or maybe like all I did was podcasting? What if social media and kind of content creation was all I did? Isn't that more effective? Because I could reach more people. I got 50 likes. Hell, I got like 700 likes on one tweet. And it was like this critique against Trump. Don't you think that's more transformative? And also organizing, it just sounds like so much work. It sounds like a lot of time. It sounds like a lot of conversation. And and you're going to face people who, oh, man, they got some backward ideas. Or they're just not as progressive as you. So um, I'm just 
say I, I'm a social media influencer and I've really built built this next platform. Why do you think why would you want people listening in on this conversation right now to abandon social media influencing culture and become actual organizers in the community? Let me chime in first, and I want to hear what Anthony's going to say. Just yeah, briefly, Anthony, I am not Anthony saying... Anthony is saying... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, Anthony's on the city council, so he's got a lot yeah, to say about that. Yeah, he got a lot to say. Let me just say briefly, I am not saying give up your social media influence. So I want to be very, very clear. Everyone is not going to be an organizer in the sense that um, every, you're exactly right. Folks can give the kind of time and commitment that it takes to organize for power in that way. And in the organizing world, we talk about the difference between an organizer and a leader, right? Or an organizer and an activist. So like, you don't have to be the organizer, right? Um, that's not necessary. I do think that what you see with Hush Arbors is that everyone is connected to an organizing pathway or an organizing lineage or an organizing tradition and an organizing practice, right? And so you're playing some kind of role. You know the organizers, you're playing, you're actively participating in that work, right? Whether that is talking to your neighbor, talking to your coworker, talking to your pastor, having someone sign the petition, showing up at the meet, right? But you're not necessarily the one that's organizing all of those things. So I just want to say, you know, if you're a dope social media influencer, I would, I would ask you to call into question what kind of politics and worldview that you are proliferating through your social media. <laughs> and I would say, get connected to the organizers in your community. Um, that's what I would say. But anyway, I'd love to hear what, what, uh, what, uh, what Anthony had to say. Yeah, well, me and Brandon, we talk about this a lot, about how we see people, even in the Christian world, who are on uh, social justice side. Because uh, there's been many instances where I meet Christians in particular who are in the social justice kind of the cool kids, like the cool social justice people. Uh, not taking away their influence or anything like that. But what I often find is a disconnection from a real community uh, in the on the ground, uh, like people that you uh, that you talk to on a regular basis, people that you connect with, that you eat food with, you have table fellowship, uh, y'all share resources, y'all do things to go in the community. Um, so I think that it's important that if you are engaged in those kinds of ways, for me, like me and Brandon talk about this all the time, especially as activists and organizers, we try to use everything. We try to use everything to tell the story, to raise consciousness, especially when you're in spaces like where I live in the South, where there is a very, very, I mean, it's all over the country, but this, where I live is very oppressive. Like the white supremacy is very loud here where I live um, in the part of North Carolina where I live where we just had a county commission run on God's guns and something, Trumpism, I don't know what it was. And this is that's the status quo here. So it's a very oppressive kind of environment. And so when you're like me and you do have people who are on social media in spaces like this, for me it's like, you gotta use that to tell a different story. But it's also not just to tell a story, not just to make noise, but also a call to action. An invitation to convene. Hey, we're going to be here. We're going to sit down and talk, whatever. And then there's times when we do convene off of social media. Because there's some spaces that we need to convene that the larger forces that work in our community don't need to know about. 
so that's for me it's just from the pragmatic standpoint of just being an organizer and you know i am a preacher so it's like we got to preach the gospel right we got to proclaim good news and so part of proclaiming good news is not only embodying good news as a community but it's also how do you find ways to proclaim and tell a different story it kind of reminds me you know when you see the story of uh the early Marxists, when Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, uh, they took over, you know, a uh, press company, right? When they're publishing and they're tracks, they're spreading information. They're using contemporary means of communication and medium uh, to get the message across to spread. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, it's almost like it's almost like like just another piece around. You say like, why would you not? Why would you not? Uh, like, what's different between that? And the, I do think it's I, I, and I think Anthony spoke into that in terms of the community in so many ways. The only other thing I want to add is this: so much of organizing is about leadership development, right? Yeah. And being able to track, not in a like petri, you know, not not like in a like disconnected kind of way, but being able to know the names of each person that you have a responsibility for as an organizer or a leader in building power. And that until you know, throughout the process of us building a revolution, the process of us making transformative change, that you, I, I need to be able to come to Whitney, to Anthony and Chase and say, here are the 10 people that you are responsible for turning out, right, to our work together. And, and I want to know why this person what is it about their commitments? What is it about their values? What is it about their worldview, right? What, like, and if they're, not, if they're not committed, why are they not committed? You cannot do that kind of, again, going back to Ubuntu, that kind of um, beholding people for the complexity of who they are so that we might build the kind of collective spaces and collective struggles. You just can't do that. So you might be able to turn out a, a thousand people to a demonstration after, you know, any, you know, one time or any number of times because you have influence. But it doesn't say a whole lot about whether or not how those people will vote. Now, of course, we could we could contend about whether or not voting, you know, the role that voting plays in our struggles. But it's one tool or, or how those folks will um, will show up uh, uh, in terms of the kinds of. I mean, part of organizing is polarization, right? You you want you want to make the the change you want to see as dramatically different than the than the present the present state of things, and you want to name specific institutions and leaders that are preventing um, the world the, the world as it is the world that you want to see come into fruition from the world the world to come, and it's something completely different. When you've got a random sea of people that you that no one can really account for, and when you start asking them to make real commitments to um, to break rank, to disavow, to publicly confront and resist people that they may benefit from, and so this is where organizing gets down to who 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 are the ten people, right? And so I just want to name that like. They are just different things. They don't have to be in competition, right? Um, they're just not the same. And you need organizers and you need social media influencers. I think the problem, and I appreciate your name in this case, is that the narrative that gets proliferated in social justice circles now is that social media influencers, activists, what you put on social media is organizing. And what that is taking away is the kind of imagination and the kind of 
the kind of, yeah, let's just say the kind of imagination about what it means to really build power. Yeah, we've lost a lot of like our actual organized real base. Um, we have, you know, one organizer for 99 influencers, 99 podcasters, 99 t- blue check Twitter wannabes, right? And and so I think that needs to be flipped. We need we need 99 people who are week in week out. Um, we mix it up. We organize. We mobilize. We arouse. We do education. Those are different things. Um, for different seasons that need emphasized depending on what the struggle needs at that time. But 99 of us should be doing that. Um, and then perhaps, you know, 1% of our, of our life can be given to, all right, I'm going to say something on Twitter now and it's not going to do anything, but, yeah, but maybe it'll connect some people for a second. I, I, yeah, I just wanted to emphasize that I, I feel like there's just so little organizing happening and that's how we're actually going to, develop these struggles for these these demands that we want if we want basic demands one for our within our communities if people want to see some kind of even just the mildest most mediocre changes in their communities at their workplaces um, and in their apartment complexes uh, in in their churches no matter what right we're going to have to actually do some real relation uh, organizing and maoism on one hand i think gives us a really powerful and necessary understanding that it's the masses and the masses alone that transform and remake history. Because I think the opposite of organizing is this corporate funding of just pump out a bunch of media and and try and 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 get people to show up somewhere or again it like doesn't take real relationship if you were going to do an action at your school if you're going to do an action uh, at your uh, in your community or at church or at your workplace you should know exactly who and how many people are going to show up. But today it's like, well, we're going to do this event. And no, we don't really have really deep uh, relationships. We're not really organized. So I'm not for sure how many people are or are not going to show up. I'm not for sure how many people are or are not going to vote for who, right? If you're really committed to electoral politics, you should know who is going to vote and not vote for who. And, you know, it's not going to be a surprise. But because or every single year, you know, whether it was Bush, then Clinton, then Bush, then Obama, then Trump, and then Biden, and whoever's next, they're spending billions more dollars every year, and they don't even have a real fucking base, right? They're not. They we we aren't organized anymore. So I think if we want to counter that kind of money, that kind of power, if we want to really develop uh, a real struggle that can uh, that can defeat these systems of death, settler colonialism and capitalism and patriarchy, then we're going to have to do some real relationship building and move away from this perform my politics and, and hope somebody thinks I'm special and interesting, listens to me and retweets my stuff. Yeah. All right. So one of the chapters is, uh, is called getting free and hush Harbor's played, as we've uh, said tonight, uh, a specific role in the survival of enslaved Africans. But at some point, enslaved Africans made a class alliance with northern white capitalists against southern slave-owning capitalists and used the gun to temporarily end their formal enslavement. Um, That is until slavery was transferred from uh, private slave owners to the state through the process of criminalization. But enslaved black people were then turned into black workers. And today, you know, the majority of Africans here today still live and die prematurely, producing profit for America's ruling white male capitalist class. So they work for the white boss. Uh, 
uh, pay rent to the white landlord, have their impoverished earnings stolen from them by the white lender, have their families torn apart by the white armed state. So I wanted to posture the, or offer this to you all. What's it going to take, do you all think, for black people to finally win their freedom from the United States and finally end their 400 years of exploitation and oppression by the ruling white American capitalists? Well, uh, if history is any kind of teacher, what we've seen are moments. Um, I'm thinking in particular Reconstruction as an example. Although far from perfect, it was a moment where there was 12 years. Like even here in North Carolina, uh, during that Reconstruction era, there was a fusion politics that took place where you had uh, whites, Black people formerly enslaved come together to form a fusion politics. Um, We had a significant amount of African-Americans or Black folks that were in the state Senate that helped draft the Constitution, uh, which, by the way, is is almost the same Constitution today, uh, a state Constitution. Um, So you had moments like that. You had that possibility beginning to merge. And so I would say in the United States in particular, it's going to require a bigger, better reconstruction, a bigger, better underground railroad that's going to require um, people, more people, white, black, brown, across the spectrum, across intersections, uh, to build power together in local communities that affect state houses. And so at the end of the day, the major thing is there has to be, uh, one, uh, a reparation of land displaced from indigenous peoples. Um, There has to be some kind of repair, reparations uh, for different groups, uh, black folks in particular, as an example, uh, for the labor um, that was stolen from them. Um, And so I think there's moments of history where we can see something trying to pop up above the soil. Um, and I think we can learn from that, but we just have to find ways to make those stronger, deeper, more resilient. So I guess what I'm saying is we're not, we're not without, we're not totally without precedent of that happening is what I'm saying. Right on. Uh, Brandon, Whitney, what do y'all think? That was beautiful. I don't know that I have much to add to that. Um, that was incredible, Anthony. I, I think, if I had anything to add, I guess I would say, um, you know, I'm all for revolution. I'm all for burning it down. I also recognize that coloniality that infects the white brain and infects everybody um, makes me think that an end product is the solution or that a completion or a perfect end is um is the goal, whereas a true kind of decolonial anti-racist posture celebrates those tiny victories, right? Celebrates a neighbor knowing a neighbor, celebrates all of that is um, is part of the work. Um, and so just to say, you know, there's not a sense of waiting for this perfected future to come down from heaven. There is a celebration of all 
the attempts and the failures and the reattempts to begin to build some of that um, in a non-linear decolonial way. Yeah. Listen, y'all, y'all are my homies. This this reason why we this reason why we comrades. Two words: power and love. That's what we need. Um, and those things are not static things. Um, they are not linear. Um, and we have been building and um, been one of me and uh, Eddie's favorite word, cartographers of. Uh, paths of power and love for many, many, many generations. And I love what you said, brother, that it's about deeper, deeper. Um, it's about expansion. And and I do believe that it's a kind of hyper-local connected to the global struggles across, across the world uh, for inspiration and to join in. Um, and that's happening. And I think that part of our responsibility Again, so we want to talk about influencers. Part of the responsibility of influencers is to tell those stories because the corporate media is not. Right. We have to tell those stories of where our people are still in a way right now. That's the reason why we wrote this book. Right. We know that this book is not going to get the kind of airtime that a lot of Christian publications are going to get. None of us are full time writers and social media influencers. We are. We are taking time out of our schedules, right, to try to to reshape the narrative and to tell the stories, and that's what it's going to take. Um, and uh, and so I really appreciate that question. Yeah, because I think we can, you know, have a very white conversation about hush harbors, right? A very colonized conversation around hush harbors. But these were communities where people came together, they fled their enemy, they hid out, they came together, they worshipped, and they were transformed, and that both had spiritual and political consequences in their participation in these things. And um, yeah, I think uh, I think it's something that that a lot of people are are really wrestling with again. It's been bad for the last couple hundred years, and um, we are not heading in a good direction either. And I I do wonder, coming from a communist perspective. Uh, whether the masses of working people could end their exploitation, end the existence of capitalist exploitation through even the best, most powerful fusion, kind of anti-racist organizing fusion politics. It has happened in the world a few times. Uh, Chile was the first example, and this is a great example, where uh, Salvador Allende, a so, uh, he was a member of a socialist uh, party, and he was elected president, and he took power, um, but because they took a certain means, they took the uh, electoral route, they weren't able to seize certain parts of society, and it was quickly overthrown. We all know the story of Chile and, and the U.S.-backed uh, coup. And, and it was pretty swiftly done. And now Venezuela has done something similar, right? They elected a socialist party into power. and But uh, the Venezuelan people may uh, very likely be coming up against some serious, or they have been facing some challenges, but perhaps those contradictions are really going to come to a, uh, the fore. And I guess I'm led to the uh, revolutionary communist line that helps us look at history and say, if if workers want to end their exploitation, at some point they're going to have to take that power. If 
colonized people, like indigenous people. You know, you talked about, um, Anthony, you mentioned reparations. I'm all for reparations. Reparations are, are a necessity. But I think one of the important questions that I think people are having now is, well, how are those reparations actually going to happen? Is there a world where we just elect the right people into power and then they literally give just millions of acres back to indigenous people? You know, is there a world where where black people are able to end their exploitation and have access to all of the basic needs of life and actually have real political power that was won through like the Democratic Party, right? So I, I guess one of the things I, I, I want to push back against is my fear is that the the electoral role, the aggressive, strong, reformist kind of uniting the multiracial uh, working class attempt, it, it got crushed in the past. And historically, it seems to, to not be able to have the kind of power to defend that kind of power. And so I am wondering if the necessity of revolution just begs for us. And by revolution, I'm not just talking about armed struggle. That's the principal part. That's the main kind of the final part of it. And that, that has to happen. But a lot of revolution, I think best example for us right now is in the Philippines, also in the India, the Indian Maoists are developing their protracted people's war. But the communist part of the Philippines, they have a, a, a democratic front. And so you have cultural organizations, you have church organizations, you have political and labor organizations, and they're all waging these actions, these mass strikes, and they're really developing their struggle there. But they also understand that at the end of the day, their new people's army is going to have to defeat no longer Duterte, but Marcos Jr., son of Marcos from the 80s, who's backed by U.S. imperialism. They got a lot of weapons, and they're not just going to hand the island back to the masses of Filipinos through an election. So to wrap it up uh, there, do, do you all have any any thoughts on this question of the necessity of actually waging revolution so that black yeah. people end black suffering so that the masses yeah. of working people and indigenous people can end the exploitation and the colonization and, and realize that that uh, new people's democracy. Well, one thing I would say is when I talk to my, my elders, um, and when they tell me about their elders, they tell me things like they never would have imagined a day like today with all its injustices, with all its, alienation with all the things that are happening um the world that we see today because of the struggle of those who've gone before us um who have pushed a needle some that go forward go backwards but my thing is i'll fall back to james baldwin whether we win or not the reality is we must do the work and so, you know, when I talk to my elders, they've seen things change in their own lifetime. They see some things stay the same. It's not one big, it's not a, it's not a same, it's not a, it's not a singular continuum in historical change. It should be like two or three or four or five different continuums at one point, at one time. So, so for me, you know, that's why it's so important that we talk a lot about our ancestors in this work because they prayed for days like this, however momentary those moments may be, or how short-lived those days may be, um, there's a certain level of movement of freedom that 
uh, that some of us enjoy that a lot of our ancestors didn't enjoy. I'm not saying we're totally free, but the world has shifted in many different ways in different pockets around the planet. And part of the reason why is because people engage in, 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 in long-term struggle. And so I think, one, you fight, you struggle because we must. That's all I got. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate that. I value it and agree with that. I mean, I think, I think, uh, I think, first of all, there's not going to be a revolution that's not organized. So that's the first thing. Um, and I would challenge you, you know, any of us in this country, history, in this country's history, to name any place that that was the case where, like, the revolution, whatever revolution wasn't, you know, whatever those revolutions were. So, like, it's not, and I, I agree with you in terms of, the maturation of global capitalism we aren't at a kind of place where we can be precious about this um and so so i i I hear the urgency of what you're trying to say and i think what we're all saying i I don't i don't think that any of us are are at least from what i'm hearing us say are making an explicit commitment to a sort of reformist way a revolutionary 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 way or or the other ones that you name i think that what we're trying to say is that that you get none of those without being organized and so for us find 10 churches in your local city that actually engages in organizing it's hard so we can talk about revolution all day my question would be first organize the people and i think that we have to wage those sorts of principled struggles within our movements about the kind of world we want to see and what it'll take us to get there. Um, and I think I'm, I'm certain and know that there are plenty of conversations that are happening around whether that's going to involve armed struggle or, or any other number of uh, sort of strategic um, commitments moving forward. But we won't get to any of those if we aren't organized. And it seems to me that the principle and priority in this moment that um, capitalism is doing a really damn good job at is keeping us disorganized and despairing and hopeless, which absolutely are the antidotes of being organized. Well, excellent, y'all. It's been great to talk with you all. Um, again, Whitney, Anthony, and Brandon, all contributors of a newly released book called Liberating Church, a 21st Century Hush Harbor Manifesto, Eight Characteristics of Hush Harbors on Six Church or Religious Communities. Really, really interesting, fascinating book. I think y'all will find it interesting and I would love to uh, have you all and some community members get it, read it, study it together, have some good, rich conversation. You all, thank you so much for chatting with me tonight. It's been awesome. Thanks, Chase. It's been wonderful. Good to be with y'all. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Chase. Love you, man.